I've never experienced anything like it and I definitely don't ever want to experience anything like it again. Everything is very black. Um, you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And how yeah. you balanced your, your own feelings and your own situation against yeah. having to help your team through it. Sitting next to the um, you know directors from the acquirer and you know quite often saying things that I honestly didn't believe. I think we learned about it uh, over a year before it actually happened. Snuck in one day in about June, I think it was, <laughs> um, because we had to clear our desk. We just walk around across the door and look through the little gaps and you know sort of what are they doing? What are they doing? And and it can say anything. So. Did that take a toll on you? Yes, but it, it, it did. Um, it did, yeah. I see a lot of the problems. I work with quite a lot of different businesses across the PBSA and BTR, and I, I see some of the problems that we had right at the beginning sort of still in there. If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Um, I would... Hi, Jackie. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. The first question, as always, what is the hardest change that's happened to you in your life? The hardest change that's happened in my life, apart from sort of personal changes like having children, for example, um, I think was the uh, acquisition of Liberty Living by Unite. Um, in, um, I'd built up the HR team from scratch across 17 years. Um, was part of the growth of Liberty Living from from virtually its inception, not quite, I have to say, um, up until 2000, um, and having to make not just um, the wider business um, central services department redundant, but my own team. I think was it's the hardest thing I've ever done. It was the, the in terms of change for all of those individuals um, and myself. You know, it was kind of totally the end of an era, and then having to move into something totally different and the unknown. Um, you know, I've I've never experienced anything like it, and I definitely don't ever want to experience anything like it again. Um, however. There is always positive at the end. You know, there is light at the end of the tunnel um, because with change comes opportunity. And whilst in that moment, you everything is very black. Um, you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, you know, if, if you're familiar with the Kubler-Ross change curve, you know, you're going up and down and up and down. You're right down in that bottom part of that curve and you can't see you can't see how how to get out of it. Um you just have to tell yourself you will you will you'll get out the other side and it will be better um and uh, you know I, I use that experience myself to try to help um other employees in uh some of my client businesses within pbsa and btr uh through times of change um doing a lot of tupi at the moment so you know um i think having had an experience of change that was you know, monumental, quite frankly, um, really, I hope, helps to provide a little bit of reassurance for, for those who are going through change. Yeah, I'm sure. And, and I guess I'm interested in that whole journey from Liberty Living, obviously being purchased by Unite and, and 
you say about making certainly the central services team, but you know your wider team, uh, your own team, you know redundant. How did you find leading that, but also being part of it? I'm always interested in that. You know, in terms of being the leader for the team, and I'm assuming a, a leader of you know you were on senior management team yeah. for that, and how you balanced your your own feelings and your own situation against yeah. having to help your team through it yeah well i i'm a gemini i i guess i'm often two different people and i really through that process felt like two different people you know there was the part of me that was having to chair the consultation meetings uh with the with the employee representatives sitting next to the um you know directors from the acquirer and you know quite often saying things that i honestly didn't believe um and you know it's not right to go into some of the the detail around that but you know it was such a difficult situation to sort of be that person there chairing that meeting um along with how they wanted things to be said and communicated and then to come out of that meeting and then not just talk to the people who i've just been you know chairing the meeting with but then go back into um, into our HR office uh, and see my team who just looked at me as if to say, what was all that about? Um, you know, and I then changed to uh, twin number two, as I call it. And, you know, um, we just talked it through, you know, um, they realised that I was doing a job. And I think, you know, in the role that I had, you know, ultimately I have to represent the company um, and, you know, if I disagree with something, I will, I will tell them. Um, but ultimately I had a job to do and that job was to ensure that this happened. Uh, however difficult that was, but, you know, um, I think it was a real, uh, I can't think of the word now, but at, at the point that that was over, um, and we were heading into COVID as well, I think, the fact that my team, we still continued to work together through sort of the closure of everything remotely and having lots of silly online games and quizzes and all sorts of things, you know. Um, so we still sort of, we, we stuck together. I think it was kind of strength in numbers, you know. Um, and they asked my advice on a personal level about things and I, I advised them, you know, and this is, you know, I'm not advising you as your, your HR director um, or even as a, as a colleague, you know, I'm advising you in my capacity and knowledge as an HR professional, but also as a friend, this is what you could do. This is how I can help you. And this is what I suggest you might like to look look at doing. So so how long was that sort of period from initially finding out? Well, for me, it was a lot, awful long time because as, as you might be aware with these type of acquisitions, you know, they take forever. So, I mean, I think we learned about it uh, over a year before it actually happened. So it was in probably February um 2019 um it then went through it was going through the cma um it was announced in july 2019 um and then the it was completed in november 2019 and then the transition started so um the redundancy process 
started probably February 2020, just before COVID, Mm -hmm. January, February 2020. So we managed to get all of that done in person prior to COVID. COVID was end of March, wasn't it? Um, And, you know, the, 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 the difficult part as well was, you know, sort of we're all in the office on one day, having just got through this process and, you know, waiting for the inevitable. People have been given notice, so working notice, there were different staggered leave dates. Um, you know, some people went at the end of March, some at the end of April, some end of May, some end of June, and the dregs went in September as though everything was handing across. Um, and, you know, we went in the office on, on, on one day and never came back. Um, yeah. yeah, that was the hardest thing as well, I think. Um, we did come back. Um, we kind of defied lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> all snuck in one day in about June, I think it was um because we had to clear our desks you know we had to take we we had uh, we kind of sort of met up um started off uh, sort of you know social distancing um it definitely wasn't a party by the way social distancing <laughs> in our breakout area and then at the end of time we don't care you know um so we all sat around and sort of had a giant picnic in the breakout area i didn't get caught but <laughs> so that was quite nice but i mean you know the process was 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 very long and for me as well what was difficult about it was from the february 2019 through to july i couldn't say a word you you know and they knew something was up because i was always in meetings and we were all always huddled in a meeting you know people used to walk around past the door and look through the little gaps and you know sort of what are they doing what are they doing and and it couldn't say anything so did that take a toll on you yes i it, it it did um it did, yes. Um, but, you know, um, it's, it, it's a job. It's something you have to do. You know, go home, forget it, um, go back the next day, carry on. But, yeah, it, it did, definitely. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you described working at Liberty as 17 of the best years of your working life. So yeah. on a positive note, what, what, why, was the, why were the best years? What was so great about, about Liberty Living? I think if you ask anybody, um, and we still say it, and you can't, you know, you can never recreate something. I think people are trying to rec- recreate little mini Liberty Livings around the country <laughs> in various PBSA and BTR at the moment. Um, but it, it was just, I don't know, under John Kenny's leadership, which was probably the best years, so sort of 10, 12 years with, with John Kenny and Charles Marshall at the top, um, we built that organization we grew it we acquired we all together developed the values of the company and everybody lived and breathed those values and i think because we were all we're we're all part of you know the growth of the organization um everybody felt that it was like a it was like a giant family you know and it got bigger and bigger and bigger but you still felt that you were we all knew we were part of something very very special and it's interesting because when I talk to people outside of Liberty um, and actually I spoke to um, a gentleman who was working for Unite a couple of months ago um, I was at a PBSA meeting and I was, you know, we were just talking generally. He wasn't at United at the time uh, that they acquired. Um, actually, he was, but he wasn't within an HR position. And he said, um, you know, the thing that's really struck him um, is, you know, how passionate the people who, the, the employees who transferred across were about Liberty Living. Uh, and he said he'd never come across anything like that, you know, before. 
um, people people wouldn't leave, you know. <laughs> they just wouldn't leave, uh, which is great, but also it, it causes a bit of an issue for people who want to, you know, move on in an organisation because if your manager never leaves and their manager never leaves because they like <laughs> it so much, you don't get any fresh blood in. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it was it was just a very very special place, and I, I've never I've never experienced anywhere like it, and I, I won't again. So, but. And go, so going back to the beginning of when you first got into PBSA, um, how did you get into it, and um, how what have you seen sort of you know what was it like even before you know I was in yeah. PBSA for many years, but that was well before my time in the industry. Yeah. Oh, a lot. How did I get into PBSA? Well, totally by accident. I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning. And that's one of my kind of comments at interview, you know, um, whoever graduates or whatever says, I want to work in PBSA. I mean, you just didn't. And certainly not in the early 2000s. It wasn't it was a very, very new sector. Um, I was working as an HR manager in a a law firm uh, in London. I was made redundant. Um, I was looking for job roles. There weren't many around at the time. I remember going to um, an agency in Leadenhall Market, going in there, and uh, the, the recruiter said to me, I've got this job role, um, HR manager in um, student accommodation. And I looked and I thought, what? <laughs> Why? What, 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 what would I want to do that for? Um, and... I said, okay, all right. I hadn't got any other options at this point. No, no, no other interviews or not, not nothing that I wanted. Um, so I went along for the interview. Met a lady called Kay Brando, who was probably the most eccentric American. Um, she, she owned the company along with her partner Roger Boyland um, that I'd ever met. Um, she was a fascinating character, absolutely fascinating. Um, very, very difficult lady to work with. Um, but uh, and and I sat in the boardroom of uh, Five St James Square, which was the old Libyan Embassy building, surrounded by small dogs. Um, she had Bichon Frise and uh, miniature poodles, which were called Gucci and Chanel and Coco. And <laughs> so you have you have an image of this lady um, dripping in jewelry. Um, and I was sort of sitting here and it was quite late because she kept me waiting for an hour. Um, and I was, I was sort of sitting in this giant boardroom with you know, silk lined walls and posh curtains and, and thinking, oh, what am I doing? And I'm not going to do the accent, but she said, you know, we need we need somebody in HR. She said, you know, we've got some real problems here. Um, you know, we, we, we run student accommodation. We've got some ground rents. And she said, you know, I've got some real employee issues. You know, there's people from accounts snorting coke in the toilets. And um, I, I just thought... Pardon. <laughs> so no, no, I went away thinking, what, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? Um, anyway, I then met the uh, sort of operations director for the next stage because I got through that interview, having kicked a number of dogs under the boardroom table because they were snapping at my ankles when I was having my interview. Um, <laughs> it was about half past seven at night, you know, ankles bitten. Um, went through the next stage and she said, you know, I really want somebody to help me sort of, you know, I, I don't know anything about HR. We need to really set up, you know, there are problems. Um so uh, with no other no other offers at the time, I joined fifth um, of March two thousand and three, um, and stayed there and for seventeen years. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, um, but how has it changed? So I think 
How's it changed? It's a really good question. Um, I think there's a lot, a lot of um, competitors now in the sector. So you know, when we started, it really was just there was Unite, there was Liberty Living, well, they were called Prime Living at the time. There were very, very few. So it was a very new sector. There weren't many people there. Um, we used to hire lots of people from the armed forces. Um, so we had a very military, um, strong uh, management team. Um, and I guess we didn't really know what we were doing. You know, we sort of fuddled around and thought we knew what we were doing and, you know, tried to provide, uh, you know, an experience for students, which was a bit different, which was more than you know, four, four walls and a roof, which I think was, we were one of the first people to coin that. It's interesting how many people now talk about, you know, we're not just four walls and a roof. It's like, yeah, we started that one. <laughs> um, you know, um, and I think the opportunities that are there for people coming into this sector um, are probably quite, I think it was probably not unique because I'm sure there are other areas, other companies, other sectors where, you know, you can join as a housekeeper and end up as the general manager. It must happen elsewhere, but certainly within Liberty Living, that's what happened. Um, you know, so we always promoted from within. We made sure that, you know, we always put our people first. That's again why they wouldn't leave, um, you know. And um, I think it, the sector has matured now hugely, obviously. Um, but I see a lot of the problems I work with quite a lot of different businesses across PBSA and BTR. And I I see some of the problems that we had right at the beginning sort of still in there. Um, I think, you know, in terms of communication, which is really, really important, that lacks quite a lot in some businesses. Um, there's an awful lot who, you know, who are setting up, set up, um, and, you know, haven't really got an idea of where they're wanting to go. They know the end product from the student point of view, but I think from the staff of the communications and setting up, you know, sort of good lines of communication with the staff, it, it doesn't always happen. So that's where I come in and, and try to sort of help that and sort of help from the, the employee side. But um, it, it's just a great, as the sector's matured, I think it's, it's a really good, provides really good opportunities for people, so. And you were described recently as the most famous HR professional in PBSA. Why do you think I, you were described as that? I don't know. I was delighted by that. So that was <laughs> that was from somebody I've never actually met before. And I, so I'm doing quite a few tupies. And uh, that was the first comment that she made. <laughs> oh, it's Jackie Hudson. You're the most famous HR person in PBSA. And I said, oh, thank you. <laughs> I put that straight on LinkedIn, obviously. Um, I... I it's a very it's still quite a small industry um, and I'm working with people now in clients that I've worked with not only in Liberty Living but in the company they moved to and the one they moved to after that and perhaps where they are now um, and people within I think within uh, BTR and PBSA are kind of moving around the sector going up the ladder um, and they keep coming across me. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I, you know, in the last three years since I've been self-employed, um, I didn't start out thinking I'm going to work in PBSA. It, it just has kind of happened. It, it's organically grown um, with people that I know 
who need some HR support because they're too small to have their own HR uh, in-house uh, team coming to me and say, well, can you help us? And, you know, that's got me known outside of my clients. Um, I'm also part of the um, um, Pay Data PBSA HR group as well. So I now meet quite a lot of people within uh, my uh, area of expertise within the business. So um don't know, but I'm going to stick to the title. I like that. <laughs> Great. You talked about um, John Kenny's leadership at, at Liberty being, you know, a fantastic period of time. Yeah. You know, other than John, who do you think has been sort of the biggest influences on you in, in all your years in, in the sector? Uh, there's a few. I think um, definitely my a few actually so first of all john kenny um in one of his um sort of leadership speeches and general managers meetings i can't remember where it was introduced us to this guy called ben zander who was a conductor of the royal philharmonic orchestra um and he's the author of a, a, a book called art of the Pos- art of the possibility um and he said you know always sit in the front row of your life um I, I haven't read much about him, but um, I will never, ever forget some of what he said. Um, and, you know, when people go into a meeting or especially if it's like in a theatre style um, situation and everybody goes to the back and sit in the back and you can never fill up the front of a, of a room, can you? I go right down the front, drag some poor person with me who's going, I don't want to sit at the front because they're going to ask me a question. It's like, sit in the front. Sit in the front row of your life. Be there. Be be, be present. Um, you know, uh, be there for people, not just for yourself. You know, consider when you got, get up in the morning, um, you know, bring your best self in. doesn't matter if you've had a really bad night and, you know, or you wake up feeling ill. You know, put on your best self and come into work and that's that's through through ben zander and 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 his his uh teachings second one probably um my tutor at portsmouth university uh dr sally rumbles um she and i sat um just after i'd finished my um my master's in human resource management and she says i'm going to do a dba next and i looked at her and said yeah i was thinking about that as well i said how long does it take she said seven or eight years part-time I said (laughs) having having just spent two years of my life trying to do my my master's um uh, anyway she helped me through um my master's um she was she was great she I now see has got her DBA so (laughs) I wish I'd done it now (laughs) because I would have been Dr Jackie Hudson but I'm not um I might do it one day so you know she was very very supportive um and, and you know definitely and I think probably the last person is a lady called Helen Parker who when I joined the senior management team at Liberty Living I felt a little bit like a fish out of water firstly because I hadn't been brought up in sort of you know in that environment as being part of that senior leadership team um secondly it was very male heavy you know um and i just didn't know what i didn't know and and uh, you know so um i've met a lady who runs um or or has uh, she she started up the british um 
mentoring society I can't that's not the right name but anyway um institute of mentoring um and we went on a couple of training courses um for mentoring and then we were looking at bringing mentoring into liberty living for the senior management team actually um and you know i i took it i, I took the opportunity of, of having a mentor and you know it sort of started off down one one path which was you know me trying to sort of feel that i had my place on the senior management team suffered hugely from imposter syndrome so that was that was a big thing i was trying to overcome so that's what i started off wanting but because it happened at the time that we then were going through the disposal and the sale of Liberty Living, actually, it kind of kept changing. And she then helped me to make the decision to go on my own and to become self-employed. Um, so I credit her hugely with where I am now, because without that, without her, I don't think I would be here. So, um, yeah. Okay. And you talked a little bit there about, obviously, you're studying um, for your master's. Your dissertation was on commitment following organisational change, yeah. um, which, you know, is obviously we've touched on a little bit already about organisational change. So I imagine you chose that because obviously you had recent relevant experience. But yeah. you know, what, talk to me a bit more about, you know, sort of the theme of that and, and how, you're, how you're applying what you, what you wrote about there and what you learned, you know, in, in clients that you're helping. Absolutely. Yeah. So this actually was a change that we'd had in Liberty. It was not a great change. Um, it was in 2012, actually, uh, 2011, I think, probably. Uh, and it was the first time we went through a restructure in Liberty Living. Um, and um, I spent quite a lot of time interviewing um employees, team members uh, as part of my dissertation, but also to understand how the change had had affected them. And then I learned through, um, you know, my studies that there were different types of commitment that the survivors of change reflected. So you have those who remain with the company in spite of change um, because they actually want to. So that's probably one of the best types of commitment. It's called effective commitment. So, you know, they want they want to be there, so that they, they stay. And then you've got something called normative commitment, uh, and that is employees who remain with the company because they feel they should do. So they they feel loyalty, maybe to the organisation, maybe to a fellow employee. So you know that's not bad as well. And then you've got the last one, which is called continuance commitment, um, and those are the employees who remain with the company because they have to not because they want to. So they can't get another job, so they're stuck here. Um, and understanding those through different types of commitment, actually, and the effect of trust and communication on survivors helped me to, and helps me now, to talk to people through times of change. So as I said, you know, I, I'm doing uh, probably about three QPs at the moment. So, you know, um, I, I'm when I'm, uh, I'm working on the incoming side so people are transferring across into my clients um, and you know I say I took again about the the, the Kubler-Ross change curve you know and said you, you didn't sign up for this I get that you know you joined company A and you're going to become an employee of company B and you know some of them look like rabbits in the headlights they don't understand what this cheapy thing is you know because it's uh, and I, I, I did a I did a um, 
consultation earlier this week and I said to the person, I, I do apologise for human resources and the fact that, you know, we're just so process driven and, you know, it's a process and I'm sorry, but, you know, we, we recognise that you are people and, you know, this is a change that you didn't, you didn't want. Um, so I think I, I use some of what I learned um, to try to help people through times of change like GP. Um, and definitely communication is the, probably one of the biggest things, I think. You know, when we did our change at Liberty, um, communication wasn't great, um, I would say. It, it wasn't. Um, we learned from it, you know, and we said next time we do it, it's going to be different. And it was different. So, you know, I'd say to anybody, if you are planning a change, communicate with the team. They're not stupid, you know, especially at PBSA. You know, you'll have you have people wandering around the building. They're investors, aren't they? You know, what are they looking at? I think some senior management think staff are a bit green. I don't know. Um, in fact, there's another set coming around and another set coming around and they're asking questions. It's like, what's going on? And nobody tells them. Um there is no harm. I know certain things sometimes have to be confidential, but when it becomes so obvious that, you know, you don't have to wait until you've exchanged before you start the GP process. In fact, please start before is what I say <laughs> to people. Please start before. So, Do yeah. you think, um, and I've been one of those managers leading GP processes, both in and out of yeah. uh, PBSA. And, you know, do you think we're giving enough training to those you know perhaps people in head of department roles even up to operations director roles on you know how to have those conversations because you know having been in that position i always mm. obviously had a trusted hr person next to me making sure i didn't say the wrong thing but yeah. you know when you get that those difficult conversations and you're trying to get across your message in a human way, albeit you, there's certain things you have to say. Yeah. Do you think there's enough of that? You know, because it happens quite often in PPSA and tupies and absolutely, yeah, no, definitely not, definitely not. And we realise that in Liberty Living actually, um, and I think we were one of the first to um, uh, bring in some real leadership and, and management training. Um, and we started off with. Um, uh, just a, not a generic course but it, it didn't lead to any formal qualifications um and then we ended up sort of putting through uh, an ilm institute of leadership management qualifications right the way from level three up to level seven which is masters um through anybody in liberty who wanted to do it so we had housekeepers and administrators doing level three uh, assistant managers and general managers doing level five, general managers and regional ops managers, directors, other people within central function, uh, senior people doing level seven. And the sort of, you know, that theme of, of, of sort of helping and training people in being managers and leaders and understanding the difference as well, between being a manager and a leader, um, really really helped so because you know you, you go through quite a lot of um i guess well-known models about you know how people learn and how people communicate and all the different types of you know uh, the best way that somebody learns you know are they are they a kinesthetic learner are they you know do they have to actually you know physically do something you know um so all of that really helps and i think you know more 
formal training and it's not something you can do in half a day so you know I have some clients asking me oh you know we'd like to do some management training you know can we, can we, can we do it squeeze it in a couple of hours it's like no you can't you, you really can't it doesn't it doesn't <laughs> you're the tip of the iceberg you know we ran these courses which went on the, the, the shortest one the level three was probably 10 months and the level seven was you know 18 months um and that involved workplace um uh tasks and you know you, you had to write to say at level seven you know you've got to write a kind of mini thesis based on a workplace problem that you want to solve so we also used it in order to try to solve problems within the workplace. So not only did it give the uh, you know staff a, qualify, a qualification, recognised qualification, it helped the managers be able to manage and lead their teams and understand how to do it properly. But it also solved some other problem that you know um, was needed needed some work on it. So yeah, absolutely, people don't spend enough time, definitely. And going through that, you know, some of these these tupi processes and even before you even begin the formal tupi process can take you know quite some time as we've already yeah. discussed like yeah we talk about commitment so some of there's a lot of uncertainty particularly at the beginning like how how would you advise people to maintain that commitment is it just regular communication or is there are other ways that you know during a period of uncertainty I think regular communication is the probably the biggest the biggest thing you can do. Um, you know, no, you're never going to know at the end of the day um, what's going to happen to those people if you're tuping them out. You know, from your organisation to somewhere else, they are. You know, you can't control what's happening on the other side. So whilst you know you hope that they're going to an organisation that's as good as the one you know your your organization you don't you don't know that and and that i think is quite quite difficult actually um um and you know you would hope that people would sort of sell to nice companies but at the end of the day they sell to the highest bidder and if the highest bidder is not a particularly good employer then you know you you it's not a lot you can do with it do about that ultimately but if you're the incoming you know if they're coming into you um again you know try just spend time with people give them the time that they want to a digest the information say you know i i did one earlier this week and you know that the news clearly hit like a like a you know train going through it the, the face was just oh I, I felt for that person I really felt for them and it's like anything it was just them words you know we we're just, just speaking at the, the employee um, so I hope that you know the outgoing organizations spend time with that employee to sort of you know allay any fears and then when the employee transfers over which hopefully, hopefully they do because they have a choice ultimately um, you know we'll spend time with them to make them feel part of the new organization um because again it's the said it's not what you chose to join you know um you you chose this company and all of a sudden you're in that company and maybe you've heard bad things about them you know maybe you know people who've had bad experiences and that that frightens people so um doesn't necessarily mean that you'll have a bad experience but um all of that fear um that doesn't help so just just let them talk communicate with them keep them advised of what's going on i think that's all you can really do to be honest um 
So another subject you really briefly touched on, you know, towards the end of your time with Liberty Living was COVID pandemic. Yeah. Um, and um, I talk a lot, quite a lot about the pandemic on this podcast, mainly because I don't think any of us has really understood the effect it's had on on people in any great depth. And we're still going through that change. So you know, what what happened you know, to you sort of personally, but from a work point of view going through that change during the pandemic and how what sort of the lasting effects do you think we've seen um, have been of, as a result of that that huge period of change yeah I think that the most obvious one for everybody and particularly for me moving in to a, a sort of a role of self-employed HR consultant is the ability to be able to do my job from anywhere you know um, in fact one client said to me I really don't mind where you are but if you're on the beach please don't you turn your camera on <laughs> and I said yeah I I would I don't want to get sand in the laptop you know um (laughs) I I think you know the the ability for roles and you know it is a bit harder within PBSA and BTR because you've got those front customer facing roles where you know you can't work from home um in the same way that perhaps you know the central services team or even general managers at times can spend some time at home but I think the whole flexibility thing you know um going into an office a couple of days a week um that was absolutely unheard of I mean you know you went into the office if you were not uh, in a front-facing role every day to go into your little office sit with the people that actually you probably didn't see them you just in meetings all day but never got any work done um, but you know you had to travel to go and see people um during COVID, I was doing a, a redundancy process. Um, and, you know, the first question was, can we do this over Teams? Can we do it over Zoom? You know, uh, none of us knew what Teams or Zoom was either. So we were grappling with technology. So we've all come more tech, tech savvy, definitely, <laughs> in the last couple of years. Um, but, yeah, it's like, yes, you can. I mean, you know, in an ideal world, perhaps you would actually be with that person, you know, and hand out the tissues or whatever. But you you can do stuff remotely. You can work remotely. You get a, a you know a, a better work life balance. Um, you're not spending hours commuting. Um, but I do think it is important to spend time as a team in person as well. So I think there's a good balance now for for a lot of people. Um, and it's moved, you know, that whole flexible working issue on by more years than I think we would have ever we wouldn't be be here now without COVID at all we would still be all going into the office five days a week you know stuck to our desks it it wouldn't be like it is now I probably would have struggled with my uh, building my business being um, totally remote or I'd have to spend an awful lot of time traveling up and down the country you know Uh, my my clients were all over the place Um, so I wouldn't earn as much money because I'm traveling um, uh, I wouldn't get as much done. Um, so I think, you know, the benefit is huge. Um, but, you know, it, it also does bring problems because managers have to learn to manage remotely. And it, if they haven't had some of this sort of leadership and management training, it's going to be even harder. You you know, you could be sitting in your house and you've got your team all over the country. You you've, you never see them. 
especially if you don't have a physical office that anybody goes to, uh, onboarding people becomes quite difficult. Um, your processes have got to be very good. You know, you've got to have your processes absolutely um, spot on so that people don't feel that they're just dumped. And I think that's happening as well. So um, I think, you know, sort of uh, employers need to spend more time sort of looking at their onboarding and making sure that their managers are trained in managing people remotely because that's that's quite difficult yeah i think i think we're seeing that a lot and i think yeah i'm reading in in the press online a lot about you know employers forcing employees back into offices are we starting to see that in in pbsa and btr for central services teams or is it still being still preferring that remote model it's a bit of a mixture some i'm seeing are definitely forcing in um but not on a five-day week you know basis so it is more flexible um others still are taking the view of well actually no we'll continue on you know purely hybrid especially if they haven't got an office so there's still that i still have clients that don't actually have a physical base so it's not an option um but it is it is moving it is shifting more back to where we were but as i say with but not with five days a week. Um, but I'm, I'm seeing a mixture. I'm seeing a mixture. So I think as I was at the, the last PBSA meeting I, I was at, you know, so that was looking at the industry as a whole. And the general consensus was we like our central people in to be, three day, to be in the office three days a week. Um, yeah. So that's kind of where it's settled. And I think that's probably where it will stay. Because um, I think people will fight if you try to get them into the office on, in London on a Friday. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think it's uh, it, it, it's definitely almost baked in now, isn't it? Certainly the Mondays and Fridays, unless oh, absolutely. You, you look at the railway station, yeah, the car park at the railway station today. I dropped my husband off; he's gone in for his one day a week in, in London. Absolutely shock of the car park tomorrow; it'll be empty. So. <laughs> um, the other thing, and well, another thing you talked about briefly was imposter syndrome, and yeah. and how you know you overcame that. Um, do we think that that's been because it's become more widely talked about in the last few years and and i often wonder if that is related to this a little bit to the more remote based work or perhaps it's it's gone the other way uh i'd like to get your thoughts on it because operating remotely there's less opportunities for feedback from managers or colleagues where you, know, you perhaps don't know whether you're specifically if you're starting a new role that's really difficult um depending on the onboarding program but mm. i i do wonder if that more remote has led to this uh sort of uh, or maybe it's just we're talking about it so i'd like to get your thoughts on whether that's had an effect on is imposter syndrome being made worse or more prevalent by mm. more remote working style mm. That's a really interesting question. I haven't really thought about it in that way. Um, I don't know. I've not seen anything that would lead me to believe that remote working itself is causing more prevalence of imposter syndrome. I think it's more about talking about it. I think, um, you know, three years ago, even not, you know, pre-COVID, um, it's not something I'd really come across a lot. Obviously, I'd studied and I'd seen, you know, I was sort of reading about imposter syndrome and be working with an HR, you know, you kind of understand. But it was interesting because until I had my mentor, I hadn't 
actually even acknowledged it in myself at all. I had no idea that what I was going through was was imposter syndrome. I hadn't actually put a label on it. Um, and I think a lot more people are talking about it. So I think it, it's it's more out there. People are more aware of it. And, you know, you hear famous people talking about it. Um, who was it? Um, I think it was Helen Mirren um, had said, you know, she suffers from imposter syndrome. Think, what, do you, what do you mean you're an actress? <laughs> you, what do you mean you're Surely not, surely not, you know. And, uh, uh, yeah, I, it can't help with remote working because I think, you know, if you do suffer and you you haven't got somebody to talk to in the same way, you know, it, it's not the same when you're at home, you know, working, whilst you can talk to your colleagues on Zoom or Teams in meetings, you don't have that chat, do you? You don't have that sort of chat that you do when you go and make coffee or, uh, you know, you're having lunch or whatever. Um, so some of this stuff isn't going to come out. And I don't think, you know, maybe we should encourage people to talk about it more because, you know, I don't, I don't ever see it in an appraisal form, you know, <laughs> it's, it's not something you just bring up. Um, and I also wonder whether people, especially women, I think probably find it a bit of a negative thing to actually admit that, you know, I have imposter syndrome. I, I don't hear many men saying it. It's interesting. It, it is mainly women who come out with it. Um, and I don't know if it's, because women are made or generally feel that they're not good enough. Um, But certainly understanding what it was for me um, and then also being self-employed and realising that actually my knowledge against somebody who is wanting me to help them is so more I have so more knowledge than they do (laughs) it actually helps because it's like well I could say anything you wouldn't actually know but so you know and you get more thanks as well interestingly and people say oh thank you so much you know to know what I'd do without you it's like oh okay so that helps it as well that helps the imposter (laughs) syndrome um but yeah I I don't think as I said I think the remote working isn't going to help people to talk about it because you're not there in having that conversation in the moment so okay and we talked about falling into pbsa as most people do um you know to really take the sector to the next level we obviously need the best and brightest people to come and work you know and the very best people to come and work in this in pbsa or btr or any of the residential living sectors so um how do you think we should go about trying to attract those people whether it's you know from from school, from college, from leaving, you know, great universities. Mm. You know, how how can we sell the industry and a career in the industry, which has obviously given, you know, you and I so much yeah. over the years. Yeah. How other than us talking about it on, on yeah. sessions like this, yeah. how do we get yeah. that out there to people to to attract people to the sectors? It it's it's interesting, isn't it? I I still think, you know, it, the the PBSA industry has a ready-made sweet set of individuals in their accommodation who are experiencing it from the student side um and you know opportunities like summer working and things like that you know you, you can hand pick the people that you you know, the students that are in your accommodation that are working, that, you know, are good students um, that are looking for some summer work. 
and, and get them interested in actually being on the other side. And through doing that, so we did that in Liberty Living a lot. We, we, you know, we would always go to our students first. You know, we wouldn't go to agencies and say, oh, we need, you know, half a dozen tents. We would look at students because they were there. You know, a lot of them would be interested in summer work. Um, and some of the most, there's some people now at the top of the PBSA industry who started their life as a summer student helper on the front desk. And, you know, they're now head of operations for XYZ Company Limited. I'm not going to say them, but, you know, um, and you've got that ready made. So I think we should harness that more. I think, you know, as as a a group of individuals and, you know, we're trying through our sort of PBSA HR group to sort of share ideas and, and, you know, maybe that will help a little bit. I think it, it, it almost takes quite a few sort of groups who of, of like-minded individuals who work within PBSA to sort of perhaps brainstorm and, and, and try to move it forward. But yeah, you've got a ready-made whole, every year you get another whole batch of students that you can use and you can, you know, open the world of PBSA as a, as a, 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 um, a career to, to them. Um, and they, they see it from the other side and, then they're your best advocates because they've lived it. They, they, they know that they like the accommodation. So that's tick the box. And then actually they see the other side. So they become very good salespeople for you. I think that's great advice. You know, I think it's, um, it's often easier to, to go to an agency or, you know, look elsewhere and to other sectors when, when, like you say, we've got, got the best and the brightest living in our (laughs) buildings already. Yeah. Why, Why would you not? Why would you not? So, Seems, seems seems a bit silly, but uh, yeah. And um, on a couple of previous sessions of of the podcast, I've talked about retention quite a bit, and how you know that is, the retention is is particularly low in certain operators and in the centres, mm. probably lower than it has been for a long time, if, if ever. Yeah. yeah. Um, why do you think we're seeing that? Is that a is that an industry problem or is that a wider problem? And and secondly, if I can ask a, a double-barreled question, uh, what advice would you give to people that aren't that are struggling to retain their their great people? Yeah, I think it is. It's not just an industry problem. I think it is broader than just PBSA um, because you know, with the cost of living, people are looking to you know they they need to earn more money, so they're moving more. But within PBSA. Um, where I see the biggest problems is where it is due to uh, a poor recruitment process, um, not using uh, not using people like me to help them, um, not going through a proper interview process, not onboarding them properly, and then ignoring them. Um, you know, not 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 going through sort of a review process, and all that's missing. And and you know people sink or swim or just vote with their feet you know so some swim (laughs) and succeed but you know it starts with the recruitment ultimately so it's it's, and I think recruiters generally at the lower end so if you're looking at sort of the, the CSA customer service assistant side recruiters now aren't interested in that role because it doesn't bring enough money in for them you know the roles are paying just over minimum wage to be honest in in most most pbsa um 
So the recruiters aren't interested. So the 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 company puts an ad on Indeed or wherever, um, brings somebody in, hires them. There's no process. I'm not seeing process. I'm not seeing, and I know you know HR criticise for process because we're too process driven. Um, but you know, if you ask some sensible interview questions, have another meeting with somebody. You know, don't make a decision once you've spoken with somebody for half an hour and then wonder why it all goes wrong. You know, have you missold? I'm not, I'm dealing with with a situation at the moment where, you know, I, I said I do wonder whether the person actually knew what it was they were getting into when they joined you, because do they feel they've been missold? You know, um, when they don't turn up the next day, why is that? What, what, what's gone wrong? Something's gone very wrong there. And it all goes back right at the beginning to the recruitment process. So if you don't get your recruitment right, you're not going to get the right people in. Even if you do get the right people in and you ignore them and you don't train them and you don't give them some, you know, basic targets to achieve in their first three months and six months and, you know, they're going to leave. Uh, and if you don't pay them well enough as well, they'll also leave. So it's not just about pay because pay is a very, very short term um, incentive. You know, you give somebody a big pay rise and they'll be really happy for a couple of months until they get used to it. So it's other things as well. You know, what else do you do that either sets you apart from your competitors or, you know, makes people feel that actually they value, you value them as, as an employee. So, you know, do you have a sort of employee of the month? One of my clients is, is sort of doing that and giving the person, you know, who wins that month's employee of the month or whatever, you know, an extra day's holiday. So they're recognizing them as well. So I think that helps. Um you know, looking at your benefits, things like that, you know, um, making sure that you say communicate with people and you, you onboard them properly. So I think all helps for, for retention and certainly say in Liberty Living, we couldn't lose them predominantly. <laughs> they wouldn't go, <laughs> they wouldn't move. <laughs> they were stuck like glue because, you know, we had regular meetings um, from, you know, sort of all company meetings annual conferences which were great fun i mean they were legendary um you know through to your individual one-on-ones and, and and we made sure that 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 sort of life cycle that employee life cycle pit was uh worked um but we we recruited the, the right people in the first instance as well i guess the question remains the sector's been around a long time now how are we still getting this wrong <laughs> You know, we've got multi-billion pound industry yeah. and we're still not, and I'm not saying every industry is perfect by yeah. any means, but how are we still getting this wrong not on recruiting, onboarding people? I, 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 I don't know. I, I, I do wonder, you know, my, my HR colleagues, um, what are they doing out there? Um, a lot of the smaller, smaller um, operators don't have an in-house HR team. So, you know, they're struggling on their own or they then suddenly find me, which is why I'm now becoming sort of, you know, famous or infamous. I'm not quite sure which. <laughs> um, I suppose the danger on that is <laughs> there'll be lots of little clones of each other if I'm not careful. Um, but, you know, I think, I think human resources generally could do more to try to um, be more, um, you know, effective in, in helping um, uh, and sort of not just, you know, be, being proactive, not sort of reactive to something. Um, so I kind of blame some of my HR colleagues in a way. So I'm, I'm sure if, if they, you know, 
in theory, they should know what they're doing and they should be able to help. But whether whether they're not being listened to, because again, you know, this isn't just a PBSA thing. You know, HR generally are, are often at the bottom of the pile. You know, I was reading uh, a CIPD, um, one of my CIPD magazines last week, uh, and it said, you know, why why are there very few chief executives have come up through the HR um, uh, uh, field? Because HR is seen as sort of, you know, process-driven people who sit behind closed doors and don't communicate. Um, most chief executives, managing directors, are, have come from the operations side, not from the HR side, They're or, or finance. Um, and I think I think HR itself is a problem. Um, and I think, you know, um, that then potentially um, doesn't help the PBSA and or any other sector to to get it right because they're not they're not they're not being proactive. They're just reacting because perhaps they're not loved enough. I mean nobody loves HR, let's face it. <laughs> I'm hopeful, <laughs> but you know, you see all those, you see all those, uh, all those cartoons. You know, oh, shut up, HR's here. You know, and we've heard it all before. You know, <laughs> but we're seen as kind of you know harbingers of doom. I think so. Um, I, I try, I try to try to be different. <laughs> I, I like to see it as, or certainly did when I was uh, working with in companies as a. The, the people that stopped us from getting sued quite often. Um, well, yes, yes, that that is true. Yes, but then it, we're also the people that stop you doing what you're wanting because we're. Again, that brings me. I was having that conversation yesterday. It's like, well, ultimately, it's your decision. However, I wouldn't make that decision without doing X or considering X. You know, all I'm doing is advising you, but that can be seen as blocking because you know your operations managers say i just want to get rid of this person i just want to get rid of them you know surely we can get rid of them yes but could, if you just do it properly then you'll find you're less likely to be up in front of the employment tribunal by the way have you ever been in front of employment tribunal they're not nice things you know um so we you know i just try to give them options and say we can do that i can make that happen however you need to be aware of the consequences should it go wrong because i can't absolutely promise i can keep you out of court but i'll do my best and um so obviously you started up on your own and it seems to be uh seems to be going really well um are you would you have you looked back at all is this you know is this a great move for you setting up on your own it's interesting it's like i do look back um i guess i miss being part of a team I'm part of lots of little teams, you know. Um, I don't, I, I, I don't see the bigger picture most of the time, you know. I deal with sort of, it's more reactive. It's more difficult to be proactive as a, a consultant um, because you know the client's paying and you know they want this problem sorted, but maybe they don't want the solution to stop the problem happening again. Although you do try to, you know, make sure that happens. Um, and, you know, ultimately, I, I do whatever is asked of me, you know, whether that's sort of fairly monotonous stuff or really interesting stuff. Uh, it's a total mixture. Um, so I, I miss being, say, part of a bigger organisation or a bigger, you know, a bigger team. So working with, you know, the, the, the operations team and the health and safety team and, you know, sort of as being part of a, a bigger solution. Um, but will I go back? 
I don't I don't think so I, I do I, I do I enjoy what I do um I have learned that I probably spent an awful lot of time at work not actually working because when you when you work and you can only, you only charge for when you're actually working <laughs> the hours in a day <laughs> you go at the end of the day it's like I've only billed four hours what have I been doing well I went to get my lunch you know I did all of this stuff so actually you have to work harder to, to earn seven hours money <laughs> i think everybody should, could learn there whether they're self-employed or uh, work for someone val- putting a value on the the hours yeah. of the day i think certainly it's, it's quite scary actually you know i'll sit at looking at my computer at the end of the day i think oh, i'll be so busy and it's like, i've clocked up sort of you know four and three quarter hours what have I been doing you know I haven't I haven't left this chair um but in physical you know what what I've actually or can can charge somebody is is half of my time sitting here maybe I give too much away I don't know (laughs) it's quite funny but I, I don't I don't I wouldn't go back no I wouldn't go back okay um so we've come to the time for the quick fire round questions so if you could change one thing about the world what would it be um, I would take the pressure off of um, children, actually. I've got two children. Um, one's doing GCSEs. She's got her last one tomorrow. One's doing A-levels. Um, the pressure that children have at school to do, first of all, SATs in primary school, then GCSEs, as my daughter's doing, then A-levels, as my son's doing. Um, I got the worst A-levels in the world. I left school with I I wasn't good I wasn't a good learner when I was 16 17 18 so you know I left school went to work in the typing pool in Barclays Bank they did exist at the time um with crap qualifications um I was a very late learner so I think I would take the pressure off children um to have to perform because what they're doing now they're told is gonna you know mold the rest of their life that's actually not true if it was true for me i wouldn't be here now okay and what advice would you give to someone who wants to change their direction but doesn't know where to start i would suggest that they find a mentor for me that was a big change for me um she was such a huge supporter um i then with my newfound love of studying um did two qualifications and i did an advanced qualification in mentoring uh, from the Institute of Business Mentors and I would I would say get a mentor because I, I hadn't really thought about it before and it was almost as I say you know pushed on me so I thought I don't need a mentor what can somebody tell me that I don't know already That's a very you know, ridiculous thought I had but I, but I would I'd say get a mentor really helps really helps because she helped me to change my direction um, um, very successfully so Okay, and what's going to be your next big change? Um, ultimately, I want to spend more time in Spain. Um, I want to learn Spanish. I've got, we've had a property in Spain for the last 12 years. Um, and I'd like to be able to sort of go and take my laptop on the beach and work kind of even more remotely. Um, I, I would, I would like to spend a bit more time in Spain, ultimately. Work from anywhere. I think that's the goal. Work from anywhere. Yes, I want to experience, you know, living in a different country. Um, I've never done that, and I I really, I really would like to do that. So, uh, as soon as my my kids have left school and all of that, and uh, then that'll be me dropping off. (laughs) That's (laughs) fantastic. Yeah. (laughs) 
Um, and lastly, if you were to recommend a guest for me to speak to on the podcast, who would it be? I was thinking about that. So I knew you'd ask me that question. So <laughs> I've got, I've probably got two people. I mean, I would definitely have to recommend John Kenny as he was such an influence on me. Um, the other person actually I'd recommend is somebody I've been um, uh, involved with uh, from a, a, as a client more recently, and that's Stephen McCarthy, um, who's moved from PBS, uh, PBSA into BTR. Um, and I really am impressed with, you know, what he's doing now within the BTR sector. So I think he could have quite an interesting, actually, John Kenny's done the same. He's, he's gone from PBSA to BTR as well. So either of those two. But, Great. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> well, we'll certainly tag them in the in the post and, and hopefully uh, hopefully get some episodes. Um, maybe the maybe John can tell us a bit more about the Liberty Years as well. Yeah, um, yeah, in, sure in, in, a, in a future episode. Um, Jackie, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I've thanks, really enjoyed Jack. today's conversation. It's um, I think one thing I'm I'm really conscious of when we're doing these is is giving people practical advice um, when they listen in, and I think certainly today's conversation is has given people practical advice, whether they're going through change through a tubey process or just trying to retain or recruit their best people. Um, and um, whether you're the most famous HR professional in PBSA, certainly one of the most knowledgeable. So I think people <laughs> would do well to uh, to pick the phone up to you. So, um, so yeah, you. thanks very much for today. Lovely. Thank you very much, Gareth. I really enjoyed it. It was great. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me.